0: Video Vortex podcast respectfully acknowledges that we are recording on the lands of the Bunurong Boon Wurong and Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and we acknowledge and remind people that sovereignty was never ceded.
1: What is it that we're watching? Distinguished girls, welcome to Video Vortex. Yes, it's just down there,
2: you can't miss it. Greetings, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Video Vortex. This time, our drive-in series in which we welcome creatives, weirdos, assorted individuals, sometimes couples, to talk about film. Their engagement with it, their passion for it, yada, yada, yada. You know, you're here, you're listening, you'll get it. As the last few days of October draw to a near, we are very happy to invite another horror aficionado onto our podcast. We are joined by the American filmmaker Charles Piper, who you may know from his recent short Melacostica. Got a little bit of attention in the festival circuit before the world ended. You can find it on YouTube and Vimeo, it is well worth looking up. In fact, this one is a bit spoilers. The short's only 15-ish minutes though, so we highly recommend you take a break, listen to it now, watch it now, sorry, and come back and listen to the episode, because we'd hate to ruin the fun, because Melacostrica is rad. You just definitely check it out. So join us as we leap into the conversation. It's
0: just down there, you can't miss it. Do you, are you alphabetical? How do you do? I'm curious. Everyone does it differently. So
2: I'm alphabetical by type. So DVD, okay,
0: Blu-ray. Sensible. But then I'm oh. then
2: as I said, I split off my nerd. Mm-hmm. I love these. I want to be buried with these collection, and that's, that's all alphabetical. Fair. Then by distributor. And nice. Also type. Yeah. Um, I has to be alphabetical, or I can't find anything. Books are fine. Books are easier to find, and they're a little bit more chaotic. Um, but huh. then this is one of the to watch piles
0: (laughs) wow that's uh, that would stress me out i mean it's a wonderful thing but it's also yeah i i i used to be so much better at watching films but i also like i feel like there was less i was having to do like you know like when i was like in high school right or like uh, every extra was watched every commentary was listened to these days sometimes i just
2: I'm, I just can't. I, I am I'm. I've, I've, yeah, I used to be a lot more obsessive and needing to know and wanting to find out and all this kind of stuff. But then as time's gone past, I think a lot of the world's obsession with that kind of thing has overexposed us. Like, I don't yeah. need to know a lot of the time. And yeah. there's only a handful of films now. Where I'm like, I actually want to see how they did that.
1: Versus, for sure. yeah.
2: I'm just happy with my interpretation, and if I pick up a few extra things while I'm doing some research on it for something, then I'll dive deeper. But otherwise, I'm yeah. just like, yeah, too much, too much. I mean, like one of you know one of my favorite films is Things, mm-hmm. uh, and I have never looked Wait, into...
0: the, the Canadian one, yeah. Things, yeah. The, with, with the... Yep. Oh my god, that yep. is a dissociative experience.
2: Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I love it, and I never yeah, want to yeah. know anything. I love trying to figure out what happened. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, no. The, the not knowing makes it more enigmatic and strange, I suppose. Because, yeah, if you were to look it up, it would probably just be like, well, they had no money and just made it up. And it's yeah. like, okay. Well, but you watch it and it's just... Yeah, I've only, I've only seen that fully through once, but it was like, it was like a portal into another dimension. Time, time elongated with that. It was, it was an
2: experience. Um, I've seen it at least six times now in like four years. Wow. Yeah. Um, I've seen it twice on VHS because a friend of mine had one of the Mondo VHSs and we actually screened that at my old film night twice off the VHS. Yeah. and yeah, I have inflicted it. I've screened it twice publicly and inflicted it on people. But one of the things I love about things is uh, well, there's um Miles from an old podcast called Show Show. Um, okay. He uh, was guesting on Night of Living Podcast and his theory about it was that they filmed it, then realized they hadn't recorded the audio, then realized that they'd lost the script. And so then they went and redubbed it based on what they remembered they said and happened. And I'm like, that almost makes sense <laughs> when you watch yeah, it. Yeah, I, I,
0: I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with that hypothesis. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. That's part of the wonderfulness of it is that it's entirely dubbed, and it's like it's like they just sat down and got drunk or high and just riffed. Yeah. and it's. <laughs> incredibly odd except for the yeah. occasional
2: moments where it isn't dubbed like the ending with the bridge and everything where it's so, right, but then that's, right. that becomes its own startling like wait yeah. a minute we're back in the real <laughs> oh, well that cuz yeah. the the um i i think what happened was that they tried to make a really good horror film like evil dead and realized yeah. they fucked it up and then work to salvage it by making it sillier. And I think they just nailed it. <laughs> I think they actually yeah, did yeah. exactly what they it, intended. <laughs>
0: it's, uh, they, they, they Tommy was sewed it, I suppose, in a way. Perhaps. Well, the, I so think to the,
2: say. the reason why I came to love it so much was that I think it is a horror film and a comedy separately and mm. together. Because, I mean, as, again, the, the Night Live podcast, when they reviewed it, I think like there's like five of them on there. And four of them okay. watched it together and one watched it on his own. Mm. And the four who watched it together were like, this is the funniest film ever. And the one who watched it on his own was like, this film, fuck this film, <laughs> like it I, it didn't make me feel good. I felt weird. I felt creeped out, <laughs> disturbed. For sure,
0: yeah. That's <laughs> it's definitely like, yeah. a crowd, crowd energy to keep that alive. But then, Watching. But if, yeah,
2: because the first time I watched it, I watched it on my own in the middle of the night. Oh, wow. Had, okay. Had, had, I felt like my brainwave was being altered. I felt creeped yeah. out, yeah. disturbed. <laughs> but then I forced two friends to watch it. I had a great time they were getting freaked out <laughs> and then the third time I watched it was with a full crowd and the whole crowd was behind it as if it was the greatest, a like, Mel Brooks comedy from the 70s Fantastic. so I was like this film I think it, it has all of these in it so it changes depending on the audience like there's not many not, not many films that actually do it like there's plenty of films that just don't work without a crowd but this works differently
0: <laughs> yeah no I can believe that
2: I, but well because of my, my other favourite films is Carl Dreher's Vampire. Vampyr and I want Hell yeah, all... I,
0: I that we can definitely talk about that, that's <laughs> one of my favorites as well, uh, I, I haven't bought it yet, but I have it bookmarked, one of my favorite shirt companies, it's called Night Channels, yep. and they do really deep cut, creepy shirt designs, and they just came out with a vampire shirt design, so it yeah, has the cool. logo, and then it's the silhouette of the guy with the scythe, like ringing the bell, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I want that shirt, oh, it's so good.
2: Yeah, because yeah. I had, do you know Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror, It's a book from the 80s?
0: Yeah, I, is that one of the ones that has that like hyper pink colored cover, or no, is that another '80s it, got, book? There like, are there Jack- are a couple of big '80s compendiums I vaguely remember, but they blur together.
2: Yeah, the, we the, we didn't a lot of them didn't make it out here, but this one I had when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and it was like the first one to do Euro and uh, Japan-Asian ah. horror cinema, sure. and it was like there was thousands and thousands of entries, like all blocked in like a pop-up encyclopedia style. And I read that like three or four times when I was a kid. By the time I was fifteen, because sure. I had no access to most of this stuff in a country to town. Um, but yes, yeah, so a lot of the films that I've always wanted to see were just like single images from that book.
0: Right. That's motivated. all you had to
2: dream about. Mm. So I didn't see Vampire. I was fortunate enough to see it in 35 mil, probably about 10 years ago. And nice. it was a busted up print and it was beautiful. If you ever get a chance, Del Toro does a commentary for it on the, oh, UK, I, the I,
0: DVD. I didn't.
2: I'll have to check it out. I, I,
0: I... Yeah! Wow, I, it's, I didn't realize he
2: talked it's over. He... Really, it's only on the UK DVD. It's really good. Uh, okay. And one of the things he says was he saw it playing it as a projectionist, and it was a busted up old print. He says like the film is beautiful, but you should always see it at least once, like looking because it makes that the emulsion yeah. kind of breaks down reality.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it, it's like I love cleaned up, you know, beautiful restorations, but there's definitely something to be said about the physicality of degraded film itself and and for a film like vampir which is about death and aging and dreams and dislocation that extra layer of realizing the image itself is old and decaying i think that speaks volumes it's uh it's like the work of bill morrison Mm. uh he with all the old nitrate prints his his film decasia is one of the scariest things Mm -hmm. i have ever seen and uh I was introduced to that in an experimental film class I took in college, hmm. and it was it was probably one of the most explosive screenings I've ever had. It's yeah, I, I love the look of old film when it's all scratched up yeah. and disturbing. Well, and that,
2: I, I bring up Vampire because I think it's one of the few films that does that for later generation media. The for <laughs> me, things you know, it's definitely not as classy as Vampire, but they both come from their own pulpy trash kind of backgrounds. And you know what
0: yeah yeah for sure they're is, playing it, around with stuff definitely
2: that disconnection the breakdown <laughs> between lots of stuff it's just that yeah, yeah. Dre is doing it with a lot more control i just think the things guys whether deliberately or not for me i yeah. could watch those films back to back and have a very parallel <laughs> we won't say similar
0: we'll say parallel experience <laughs> right yeah oh that's wild and I think Things also just has the Canadian accents going for it, which oh, yeah. aren't very often heard in horror film at all, I, so it, just it has an the, extra weird wrinkle. I just have the cover permanently
2: saved on my phone to bring up at parties because you just them the picture of the guy with the drill and the air and the sweater, and, the, and everyone's like, I... what? <laughs>
0: yeah. It's such a blasé image considering what's what he's in the midst of, Yeah, which is... yeah, it's...
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, it's I, I had a, a yeah, looking at your letterbox, to Twitter and stuff. So it was definitely mm. like, oh yeah, you and I, yeah, we we have, we have similar taste.
0: hundred <laughs> percent, and yeah, I, well, speaking towards that, I feel like I've known you on Twitter forever. I don't even remember when we first. fought it's probably a couple years, maybe, no, and it just it's, probably, be about a year, I think. Only a year, okay. I mean, My sense of time here. is very. 2020 yeah. year,
2: <laughs> wow. yeah, because uh-huh. yeah, I, I came across your, um, yeah, and by the way, like we'll just, I'll, I'll have a look through this, and we'll, I'll cut probably a few little bits of pieces sure, sure. out, but otherwise, yeah, yeah like yeah, I yeah. like doing these conversational kind of <laughs> interviews. It's all good. Um, yeah, I because I'd come a friend of mine, Anton Bettle, had oh yes, reviewed yeah, he
0: reviewed Malika Straka. Yeah, Anton is he's another one of those random. Uh, Twitter connections because I believe he he's over in the UK yes. somewhere right yeah, he, so he's actually an Australian I, I, expat in I, England yeah right right yeah I, I, so I've never met him but it was one of those things where we we liked similar films so I think I came across a review of his and followed him and he followed me back and he was very nice where he stayed on top of the Malika straka news as going through the fest and he was one of the first people to give it a proper review even at the time when it wasn't having much fest success at the start of its run so that mm. was very very nice of him. And his review was spot on, too. Uh, he he got it, which was, I, I, I appreciated that quite a lot. Yeah,
2: Anton's great for getting things. He's uh, constant self-battles on Twitter with how he writes and perceives things. I, I both want him to calm down and relax, but also appreciate it greatly because he's really fantastic at seeing a lot of stuff that yeah. other people don't, like seeing through maybe initial reactions and such, and getting to mm-hmm. what the film's actually doing. So, yeah, when I when I read his uh, blurb about yours, I was like, ooh, interested, noted. I actually, yeah, when I was working on a, a Paris cinema festival a couple of years ago, where he was one of the mm-hmm. first people I hit up behind the scenes, being like, what have you seen lately, Anton? I need...
0: Right, yeah. give me
2: Give me the leg up. Because <laughs> he's just on top of so much of weird cinema and regular cinema as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, well, I was looking through... Uh, so Malakostraka, um, mm-hmm. which I've said so much lately, I can spell it better than most English regular words. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'll tell you, though, never again will I take an obscure scientific name as the name of something. It, it was, it's been years of people being confused or mispronouncing it or asking about it. And it makes sense within the short, but, yeah. And I, as I'm saying this to you, have I already written a feature-length expanded screenplay of it also called Malakostraka? <laughs> yeah, but, man... Oh, God, that word, I'm tired of it. (laughs) I mean, you could
2: write a sequel called Malpertius, and it could be even more forgotten.
0: That's right, that's right. All the males, (laughs) all the
2: time. Well, it's, yeah, I I was looking through your YouTube page, and I've only (laughs) seen a small fraction of it, and I want to ask you about that at some point, because I felt like, oh, okay, no, hit another tab. Oh, no, there's more. Oh, there's more. It's just kept... (laughs) expanding
0: out (laughs) yeah so yeah (laughs) i've been on youtube since literally the week it started in like 2005 2006 i was on it so early that the first little fan music video i made with friends in college at the time was on the front page of youtube (laughs) just because there was no other content like so so yeah my youtube is like an ancient library of all my early stuff both good and bad my vimeo has a lot of stuff too but it's a little bit more curated I was also on Vimeo from the week it started. I was an early adapter to all the video sites. But but yeah, uh, yeah, I've been pretty prolific in terms of making shorts and animations and experimental stuff. A lot of that was just, I was in film college, so I was making a ton of stuff. And nowadays my output is much less, but that's because I'm busy writing other things and also a pandemic. And, well, we can get into all of it. But yeah, I just <laughs> it makes me chuckle just to think of someone trying to scroll through my YouTube and see things. Because it's, it's like a... Yeah, it's like a catacomb of weird history for me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I was cuz I was I was like okay, I haven't been as organized as I should be and I'll do a quick grab bag of things and then I was like this, this the grab bag is not possible. <laughs> no. But I yeah. there was there was a lot of there was a lot of fun stuff there that I saw that were like oh yeah, it's like things that surprised me and things that didn't surprise me. Um, Interesting. But okay. I I'll, I'll, I'll ask before I get onto that that so when did you start with film? Like, were you... Yeah. Because you're... How old are you? I can't remember. I'm 33.
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm 37. I'm not the oldest. No. Not the oldest, not the youngest. Like, I'm 30... I feel like I'm 33 going on, like, the end of the world. So it doesn't yeah. really, you know... Uh, but so, uh, yeah, I got I, into it...
2: Being a bit older, it, I didn't have access to any kind of things for right. making, especially being a, country, yeah. a poor country kid. So that's where I was wondering with the age difference, because obviously... Even looking at your things, it's a lot of just like, "Well, we have the stuff; let's make something." So, yeah, Yeah. is that how you started?
0: Yeah, so I was. My parents were crazy theater weirdos. Uh, My mom, writer, director, actor on stage. My dad built and designed sets and props and did. He he was his whole thing was he always did spoof songs to just be annoying. Um, (laughs) So I was born into this creative environment, but for whatever reason. I came out more interested in film and horror and monsters specifically than just theater. My parents, they, they let me watch whatever I wanted, uh, probably to a negative degree. So uh, by that, I mean, like, I was probably six or seven when I watched Pumpkinhead and American Werewolf in London on VHS.
1: Hmm.
0: And My parents, being very American, even without realizing it, I, they only fast forwarded the adult bits, all the naughty bits, all the <laughs> sex stuff. That was, But everything else was free game. And I liked it because I knew it was fake. I liked the the make-believe of it. So, uh, they encouraged me to, my dad had one of those big clunky VHS cameras for home movies. So they encouraged me with their help to start making little films. So my first film was called Murders at the Halloween Hotel. And it was like this murder mystery comedy that we shot in the living room with my parents and I, and we all played different parts. And, uh, I played several characters, one of whom gets killed and then his corpse is dragged away. And uh, my parents were so into their characters, they forgot to lift me from both ends. So they dragged me across the rug. I got a rug burn on my face. And I try to stay in character, but at the end of the frame, you see me kind of like, ah. And so you, the joke is I've been suffering for my filmic art since I was a child. <laughs> but uh, But so, yeah, it started very young. And, you know, not that these things are amazing, but. You know, since my parents were theater people and more focused on story, it was just kind of drilled into me to come up with stuff and characters. And it just, it grew from there to the point where I was that archetypal, stereotypical film kid in middle school and high school. And it just, it just grew and grew. And, you know, I came of age right when mini DV cameras started coming around. So I was able to, you know, I edited early animations and like the first version of Premiere and then Final Cut 7 I still love Final Cut Seven the most. It's a pity it's just crumbled and I, I work with Premier or Adobe now, but I don't like it as much. Uh but yeah, so it's it started with VHS and D V mini DV and I just yeah, I just rolled with it.
2: Cool. Yeah I've actually um just saying that I
0: just found Do you recognize this? <laughs> Is that a sixty millimeter projector? Oh it's a Panasonic. Oh wow, yeah, there you go. Solid. <laughs> I haven't actually tested if it works or not. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, yeah, but no, that brings me back. That was about the same size and shape as what I had back in the day. They they still well. sort of
2: smell the same. That weird plasticky smell. We, mm-hmm. I got one. I picked up one when I was like eighteen or nineteen. But I just was like, yeah, I was just filming my own real world. Not that I'm a documentarian. Yeah, my 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 passion was. I just watched and I read. So that's why. Yeah, went more the academic route. Um, for sure, for I've, sure. I've worked on some indie films in various capacities. So I have a full yeah, I've done I've done fun at house, I've done this just, just, just theatrical, I've done making, I've right. done academic. Give me a nice broad spectrum. But yeah, it's interesting the theatre aspect because I feel what I've seen of your work, there is two aspects to it. And there's people and there's objects. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for sure yeah and i find both equally fascinating more and more i lean towards people i think i think it stems from when i was younger and more socially awkward and strange and i i, I had trouble with people and i i had a sense of trouble about myself so i became really big into stop motion animation mm. and uh it was a hobby as a kid and as a teenager and then i went to film school i was studying film but i had such comical mishaps and tragedies with my film work i I had an entire 16 millimeter film project of mine stolen in the mail, and I had to reshoot the whole thing the next semester on my own dime. And it turned me off the filmmaking program at this college so much that I, I stepped away from it and I went back to stop motion animation because I was like, I can control it all, I can film it all, I don't have to deal with other people, blah, 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 blah. So when I graduated and uh, I was here in LA because this college, it, for your final film semester, you went to LA, the hope being you got an internship. And you graduate and it becomes a job and you're already a little set into the, the world of Los Angeles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, of course, that happened to almost none of us. And this is, I graduated in 2009. So I was in L.A. when the American economy collapsed for the second big time. And then the writers went on strike and there were no jobs and there's no nothing. And I was strictly trying to get into stop motion, which is a very small and insular world here in L.A. And the Any, thing was... I say, anyway. <laughs> well, fair enough. And beyond that... All the people who knew me from college knew me as the stop motion guy because that was my focus. So they didn't reach out to me for live action work. But whenever I tried to apply for stop motion jobs here in L.A., the, the, the professional animator was like, but you're a film major who went to film school, so can you animate? And I was like, I took animation classes. I'm self-taught. I know how to build puppets and work with latex. But I didn't change my major in the final semester of my senior year because I thought it wouldn't matter. Well, it mattered. And so it was just, it was an awkward time. And, I mean, I have a deep love for puppetry and creatures. Jan Swankmeyer is one of my favorite people, one of my biggest inspirations. The reason I went to the college I went to was because they had a study in Prague summer program. And I applied for it and I got in. So I, I was—I studied at FAMU, the big film school in Prague, for a month. Like, hmm. this is, what, 12, 13 years ago. And it was wonderful. But, yeah, I found myself in L.A., with no prospects, at a time where there were no jobs, and the economy crashed, and they're just, it it was a very awkward wake-up call, and also just the culture shock of coming from the East Coast, where I was born and raised, where everyone is a little snarkier, and quick talker, and a little bit more in your face, to LA, where everyone was slower, and calmer, and laid back, and they either were high, or they acted high, but then deep down, they were just as cutthroat, Hmm. it was a weird adjustment, (laughs) so... I lost several years just kind of like jumping from project to project and trying to get a footing and trying to prove myself in the stop motion world. But even beyond that, I was young and eager. And I had also just come through a big health scare and which was a startling big, big thing. And so it made me even more eager to prove myself. And there's nothing people here hate more than someone who's an over eager energetic would be. So it was just, it was a perfect storm. And, um, like I said, I probably lost a couple of years going down this wrong stop-motion path for me. And slowly but surely, I had to swallow my pride and my ego and shift back to live-action production, working on the art teams for music videos and independent feature films. And, yeah, it probably took about half a decade before I had met the right people to continue working with creatively and felt comfortable enough to start doing live-action work again, which is what led to all my bigger – I've done three bigger – short films so far the biggest of which is Malika Straka. and but I think Malika Straka shows that yeah I am just as interested in people as I am objects or puppets and the best is when they can be married together not to say that Malika Straka did it perfectly but for a short of its size which had as much insane pre-production traumas and craziness we can get into that mm-hmm. I'm pretty proud of it and uh I think it shows what I can do but boy I want to do more and it's, it's kind of infuriating that all the progress and all the momentum I had has been shut down because of the world being the way it is. But I, I'm working on other... I have some new stuff brewing. We could talk. Uh, I'll <laughs> let you have a word in edgewise. But yeah, I can... I have a lot to talk about. A lot of crazy stories. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, that's okay. We we don't have to fit it all in today. I want to have some regular return guests. So we'll get you back on that. For sure. Even better. Even better. Going. Yeah. Uh, the... Yeah, the, the people and objects thing is, I find that really fascinating. Like, I, I'm also a big Spankmire mm. fan. I love that, mm. the way that they balance that, especially coming out of a Soviet Union, uh, the, mm-hmm. the the way that people can be dehumanised mm. in different s- situations. That, that One of the things I love most about Spankmire is when he stop-motion animates people. It's like, well, you can't get yeah. more literalization of objectification than that.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, one of the teachers I have and I was, studying Prague had been in the Sankmeyer shorts, animated, and my initial excitement to work with him was super dashed by the fact that he was an arrogant son of a bitch who hated all Americans and believed that uh, Czech people had a uh, had a stranglehold on surreal filmmaking and cinema, and that Americans, other than David Lynch, who we loved, because of course he did, he was like, Americans can't do surreality, and I was there to make a short surreal film based on my love of Czech h- cinema, and he hated me for it, and um, he he taught the script-making class, so we would pitch our scripts to him. And I remember, after I had pitched my script, which was a love letter to the history of um, surreal cinema in in Prague, he was like, your script is the equivalent of someone in a classical sculpture class bringing in an empty Coke bottle, putting it on a pedestal, and declaring it art. (laughs) Those were literally his words. He was such a vicious... Even the other teachers at famu behind his back would turn to us and like we're sorry he's just a really mean cranky guy and like the ch- you know czech teaching it's a it's a more bitter to the point like in america it's like well this is great but and then check it the bad change it but even so this pavla guy he took the cake Ugh. oh
2: that's, that's... Still a
0: wonderful experience but
2: yeah that's that's Unfortunately, you hear that when I mean, you hear that with lots of different teaching fields. But it is, it yeah. is pretty frustrating yeah. to run into, but yeah, because right, I wanted I wanted to ask you, I saw in your experimental works, and it looked oh, yes. like you were doing work with, like we were mentioning before, working directly with um, emulsions, with scratching, mm-hmm. with a bit mm-hmm. of, like some of the stone brackage work. Yeah, I love wreckage. I figured. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, yeah I did a lot of that in college. I was taking multiple experimental filmmaking classes, one of which was taught by uh, the infamous experimental film artist, Luther Price. He unfortunately passed away a couple months ago. Uh, I think he had a stroke or something. But he was he was known for cutting up films and, and doing stuff that was so uncomfortable and perverse that often people were fired for programming his shorts back in the eighties into festivals. He did a lot of stuff that dealt with, uh, uh, decay and unease and health and issues with his family. And yeah, he was one of the, he was a teacher who showed decasia in his class, which Mm. blew my mind, but I I loved working with the emulsion and physicality of painting and scratching on film. I still have all those 16 millimeter prints or, or not prints, the actual reels of it here in my closet. And one day when everything's a little bit safer, more controllable, I want to get it scanned properly in at least 2K. Because, yeah, the versions that are up in my early YouTube, and even in Vimeo, they're they're like, you know, I would put it into the projector at my college and film it off the screen onto my mini DV to then upload a 720p to Final Cut 7. So none of them look as good as they should. But, but the art of doing it, yeah, I love that tactile quality and times or sometimes I want to
1: just
2: make more of it just for the hell of it hmm. yeah the just to continue that thought because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about was your thoughts coming from working with stop motion do you mm-hmm. relate that to working directly on the emulsion of negatives and stuff because essentially it's another object that you're working frame at a time with
0: yeah I, I liked it for the I like both of them for the tactile their physical objects, whether they're puppets or working with the film and with working directly on a film, it's fun because the the strips of film become art objects themselves, hmm. uh, that could be displayed or shown. And it just, yeah, it was fun. And it made me feel like kind of a mad scientist. Like a lot of those works I were, I was doing when I was in living in small dorm rooms. So I always had to keep the windows open because the chemical smells would be overpowering or <laughs> I'd have to hang them up to dry in the tub in the bathroom. And it's just, it, it, yeah, I felt like this weird alchemy. One of the ones I did, it was so sticky that it gummed up and messed up the projector in the shared common space of the college. And it was kind of an uh, infamous embarrassment. Uh, but that's experimental film for you. What are you going to do?
3: Uh, but,
2: yeah, the one of my favorite university classes was an experimental film subject. That's where I got introduced to mm. like Dusan Makavejev and sweet movie and things like that. So sweet
1: movie, sure, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I'm I'm a, I think it's one of the great losses of cinema that most universities don't have an experimental film class anymore because it's it's, it's, it's
0: it's a pity. I mean, even when I was at Emerson, they didn't have an experimental film class, and I had to take an experimental film class at MassArt through a consortium program that connected the colleges. And it was at the point where I was like, ah, I'm going to another university entirely to take the class I want. I almost dropped out of Emerson. The reason I stayed was I ended up getting into a comedy troupe because I had some friends in there. And I was socially awkward and wasn't big for the stage, so I didn't think I'd be a part of it. But my friend who was already in the troupe was like, well, sign up. You could be our animator. You could be the Terry Gilliam to our flying circus. And I'm like, oh, of course. And then once you're in a comedy troupe, you end up becoming a part of it. And by, you know, before you know it, you're on stage and you're writing. And honestly, it's funny because I'm not in comedy now or pursuing it, but it was that comedy family I made at college that kept me there. And in the long run, I'm still very close friends to them. And like I say, my, my work is, you know, it's hard. It's more serious, but it's, it's got a comedic bent, even Malika Straka. Like, as I wrote that on the page, I was like, this is serious and dark and bleak. And then we're filming it. I'm like, oh, it's a giant lumpy crustacean puppet baby and an author going insane, and the point is he's an idiot. Of course this is funny. So I guess yeah, in my mind I'm much more serious, but as you can see I start talking and I'm like a wacky librarian or I don't know. Uh, I,
2: I, I see the – one of my questions was uh, going to be, do people you know can describe your taste in comedies and humour as being bad?
0: Well, maybe like bad taste. Untrustworthy. Yeah. No, well, again, a lot of my friends out here in L.A. are comedians or stand-up comedians or sketch artists or or experimental clowns even. And it's funny because they see, they might be put off by my work, but sometimes I'm put off by theirs. Or the universal thing that like the saddest people you know are the comedians, that Mm. tends to be true. And then I found in the inverse, most people who are horror filmmakers tend to be surprisingly laid back or nicer. And I think it's because we're able to uh, sublimate and experiment with our deepest, darkest thoughts and get them out of our system. Like I was genuinely exercising personal issues with Malika Straka to the point where I feel better as a person now that I've made it, which is good, but also annoying because I don't think Malika Straka represents fully who I am or what I want to do now, but it's the thing I'm the most known for because it's the biggest budgeted, craziest thing I've done. So even the Malika Straka feature, without spoiling too much because it clearly hasn't been shot yet, uh, for the longest time, I didn't want to make a feature out of Malika Straka. The short took almost half a decade to get made due to health issues of mine I was working with, even financial. I don't come from money. I'm not wealthy. I had to do an epic fundraiser, and we got a ton of money, but not enough to do it immediately according to our first budget. And so it was just – it went on and on. But uh, uh, someone reached out uh, – a festival programmer that had programmed Alka Who was like, well, would you ever turn it into a feature? I'm I'm trying to get together a possible, like a group of independent feature film ideas to kind of promote as, as like a shared package to maybe, you know, is this guy trying to get in interest and make money and to, I'm, I'm, my words are spilling out of my mouth incorrectly, but you know what I mean? It was just, yeah. he was trying to join the, he dogs. was trying to get, Long story short. At first I was like, no, I don't want to make it into a feature, but it it got caught in my brain. And then I thought, well, what would be fun is if the short and the feature are different. Mm. What if the feature is the inverse of the short to the point where you think it's going to go the same way, but things start to go differently. And with the longer time, I can show more of the internal and psychological life of the wife, which unfortunately the short is strictly from the point of view, of the husband, yeah. he's losing his mind. He's a bullshit artist. He's a fucked up dude. So of course he sees his wife as a cipher. So the wife is barely there. And to the, deg- de- to the degradation of the full character, but in a feature, there's more to do. So this feature version of Malika Straka, you see more of their life. You realize he was an author who had one famous book that came out. That was great, but he's, terrified of the sophomore slump so keeps failing on following up and the pressure from the writer or his agent and it builds and builds to a different ending mm. because I didn't want to do the same horrible thing again and so it yeah. goes to different places So, I think, but,
2: I think that's a good yeah. idea you know when, when I see people talk about like I'm occasionally a gamer and I see people mm. talk about doing a movie of The Last of Us something like that it's like it, um, mm. did you not notice it didn't need it because it did it <laughs> Right. It's like, if you're going to do it, take that universe, take the ideas and Mm -hmm. either go somewhere totally different or actually expand it. Don't just make it 90
0: minutes. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that's because, yeah, I I feel like the Malikastroka short works pretty well in a short, but it's not sustainable on that same scale. Like, could you imagine an hour and a half film where the whole thing leads up to reveal at the end that it's a baby where clearly it's a normal baby. That's, that's the heart. So yeah. even in the feature, like that reveal happens way earlier. So it shifts the horror because you're like, Oh shit, of course it's a real baby. And then it, it goes to other places.
2: Yeah. But, I, it's, I think am um, am I right? I was trying to listen carefully while, also laughing at the film because i think it is a comedy i would have just say and this is what a couple of different thoughts uh sure people trust me on a lot of films they don't generally trust me on comedies
3: and, okay. I, and okay. when i say
2: i have a bad tasted humor it's not bad taste it's just the type of things that tickle me mm-hmm. are strange <laughs> fair enough and yes, i kind of got here. that from watching your shorts and things that kind of humor was like oh i'm i'm laughing at this with my kind of <laughs> which is usually a sign that other people will be like what yeah <laughs> Hence that question uh the first time I watched uh, Malika Stoka I was definitely the, the <laughs> showing it to my housemate last week with a couple of glasses of red i was like just about roaring cuz uh. so much of that humor comes out and am am i right that you have cause i love the sound work in it the sound work is real. I mean, everything in it is top notch. It's really beautifully put together. The second time I noticed the sound work a lot more, and you do have baby crying underneath yes. the noises of the creature, which I. F- yeah. Oh, so you did, yeah, because I was trying to pick it out. And I was like, I think it's in there. And I feel like, yeah, that's your little. In a way, you reveal straight away that it's a baby yeah, it's, because you've it's got a, it. It's in a it.
0: mix of baby noises and pig noises and various animals that were pitch shifted and altered to the point where at the beginning it's very subtle and the hope is the, the visual, of the puppet is so shocking that it might throw someone off, mm. but yeah, it's a baby and mixed with the subtle sound effects. And the whole time, Sophie of course reacts to it normally cause she's not seeing it for what it is. Mm. And, um, even to the point where, you know, I've had uh, some people in the ending are like, well, it would, it wouldn't be crying. Cause if it's dropped into boy- it would die. And I'm like, well, we're in the head of the, the of the guy. He's losing his mind. Like we're hearing what he hears, not whether it's real or not. So,
2: I, it's, I, it's, it's, when people come back with that kind of comment after a film like that, I'm like, that's that's the thing. That's the well. Yes, I agree with that too. <laughs> it's yeah,
0: but uh, but yeah, no. The sound that was. I've never felt more like a professional director than when I was working with that sound design company. It's a company out here. They're called. TISD. Their name is literally "This Is Sound Design," Uh but they're great. And so we did a full 5.1 surround mix from Alka Straka. So I'm the director sitting there, and they're projecting it, and I'm like a conductor. It was wonderful. And then of the like 30 plus festivals, it got into maybe two or three were able to have 5.1, and the rest it was just stereo, which also sounds good. But Mm. we it was a lot of money and a lot of work that was incredible, but you know, not many people got to see the full effect of it, and that goes in general with the, with the festival circuit. I that was a learning lesson, and uh, I, I, I it did fairly well, but oh, there was some there were some finicky bits. I if I had known better, I made some dumb mistakes myself, but also just when a short film takes almost half a decade to make, the moment you're done, you go hog wild with submissions, and if I had been a little bit more careful, I probably could have saved. My God, at least a thousand dollars or so of my own. Just lesson learned, but yeah. not to say I'm not proud of the Fest circuit. It had it had a, about as good as any short can get, I think.
2: Yeah, I've I heard. Hope. <laughs> I've heard that a lot. That you do have to be, you have to look realistically as a filmmaker yeah. at what you are yeah. actually likely yeah. to get into, and mm-hmm. save up for those those yeah. submissions and not. Just I also, yeah, blame my
0: it. my biggest dumb rookie mistake was so when I made this. I didn't feel like a rookie because it's a large scale, very professional short. We had a full cast and crew. We're talking like proper, proper Baylor's like 20 or 30 people who made this thing. And I was
1: like,
0: <laughs> but I did the dumbest bullshit thing. Uh, the The film, the film itself is about 14 and a half minutes, but the credits are about a minute because it had ta- it took so, it took over 200 people across the world who donated and helped raise the money, and so I was like, I want them to have proper credits, I don't want it to be a fast scroll, I don't want them to feel cheated, Hmm. but the dumb thing I should have done, but I was too close into the forest to see the trees or whatever, is you have two versions of the film, (laughs) you have one with the thank you that goes to the emailed people online, and then one without it to go to the fests, because at 15 and a half minutes, it might as well be 16 minutes. Yeah. And 16 minutes short is going to be trouble to program. So the amount of rejections I got, most of them, it was just because it was an awkward length of time. Mm-hmm. And that was totally on me. And that was a lesson learned. Never again.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah. that's, that's exactly... The kind of stuff that's really important to people to hear. I mean, a lot of you go to a lot of Q and As and things, and yeah. you get these questions about what kind of camera did you shoot on, how much was the budget? And It's like yeah. all of those are variables that you kind of have to deal mm-hmm. with, and there's you can get a bit of information, but it's not. It's the stuff like that that is actually what yeah. people should. They don't oh even, God! The stuff I, they I, don't I wish someone had
0: told me that beforehand, and I would have been <laughs> saved. Because well, for, so for instance, it got into Beyond Fest, which is the biggest horror mm. festival here in LA. Mm -hmm. But it only got in because I cut the credits down. Mm Because they they officially said, no film can be longer than 15 minutes. (laughs) So I sent a very polite email. And I was like, "Mm -hmm, how about 30 seconds? And they were like, if you can cut it without messing the film up, submit it to us. And I thought, okay. That's a nice thing. They could have just ignored me. But if they told me I could cut it down, they they want me to cut it down. So I did. And it got in, and then I found it after the fact that the person who told me to cut it down was a programmer who'd also programmed Boston Underground, which mm. I would submitted to, and I didn't get in, and it was a length thing, but she loved the short. Yes. So then I cut it down. I got into Beyond Fest and it was like played at the Egyptian theater here in LA. It was awesome. Yeah. What was her name? Is it her? Oh God. Uh I'd have to I'm having a total brain for it, has yeah. been such a I think, year. I, that, uh, I think I know that I think I might have met her if it's a her is it a her? I can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I think I might. Yeah, have
0: met her. Uh, uh, God. Yeah, I have to. I have to look. At it. We can. We can email later and confirm I'll it. I'll but she's this. great, cut and this, I yeah. was. I was. It was. It was nice because, like I said at the beginning, there were so many rejections, and I, I was getting so bummed out. But it. It, it balanced out. But yeah, uh, the next short I did was shorter, and if I ever do another short, I will do desperately not to have it be anything over ten minutes. I'm producing a new stop-motion animated short right now, actually, and I hope that'll be ten minutes or less.
2: Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, because I'm not a big shorts person. It's Mm -hmm. only in the last couple of years I've been like, oh, there's actually some really fun stuff here and I need to dig through it. I think I, I, even as a teenager, like 12 years old, I love three-hour films where you just kind of settle in (laughs) and soak it up. Uh, Yeah, I like
0: long films too. There's something about just being able to settle into another thing for a strong period of time. Yeah, I feel that.
2: And so I think, I was actually one of the things about your short that really actually appealed to me. It didn't feel like a short. I actually felt like I got a full meal. That was, that
0: was, yeah. <laughs> that was my intention with it, perhaps dumb, because I was like, I don't want to make just some short one-scene jump scare to go viral on the internet. I'm going to be the big, bold filmmaker who makes a short that has a beginning, middle, and end. And I just I, I shot myself in the foot a little with the length of it, but it's also minus the end credits. It's, it, it, it's right. It should be. Yeah. The story is 14 and a half minutes. And I think it's, the editor did a wonderful job. His name's Matt Latham. He's edited a lot of features, some horrors, some comedies. Uh, if you look him up, you'll see a goodly amount of credits. And uh, he did a great job. Because similarly, like, the puppet is amazing. And it was designed by a famous effects artist. Uh, we could talk about him in a bit, maybe. But it didn't work fully on set the way we wanted it to. Just because, of course, puppets never work on set. So there was a lot of things that had to be edited uh, edited to work around the puppet, and it made the film better, you know, mm-hmm. the Jaws effect, if you will. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah,
2: <clears throat> tell me about the uh, special effects. So, so
0: the puppet, uh, all the various forms of the crustacean baby were designed and built by Gabe Bartalos. He's an effects artist I used to work for out here in L.A., he did Basket Case 2 and 3. He did Brain Damage. He did all the prosthetics on Matthew Barney's Cree Master Cycle back in the 90s. He designed Leprechaun. Like, he made Warwick Davis into Leprechaun. So it was this wonderful thing where I grew up watching his monsters. Then I lucked out into getting an, a, a painting assistant job at his special effects shop. Hmm. And then, luckily enough, they just got, like, a month or two after I started there, they were commissioned by an infamous Norwegian artist who wanted some creepy stop-motions to be projected in his art galleries, and Gabe knew I did stop-motion, so I was able to ease into becoming an animator and editor of the animation there. So I ended up working at this company, they're called Atlantic West Effects, off and on for like two and a half, three years. So it became, you know, a working relationship, and uh, to the point where later down the line, when I felt like the Malchus script was strong enough, I emailed it to gabe and i was like would you want to work on this and he said hell yeah he, he liked it a lot and since i wasn't just a random person emailing him i was an acquaintance and a worker he gave me a very decent price for the amount of puppets he built mm. it was still more than any it was more expensive than any other short i had done ever alone just for the puppets but i mean the short wouldn't be the short without these amazing puppets it, yeah. was, it was wonderful and uh I hope to work with Gabe again, you know, COVID pending. Uh, one of the feature, uh, there's a horror comedy I've written, I've co-written it, and uh, I'm working with another director. Uh, I'll tell you off of this, some of the people involved, because it's not set in stone yet, So, but it's it would be a big gory 80s kind of throwback, and it would be wonderful to have Gabe on that, or just anything in general again.
2: Yeah, well, you, know, you talk about a lot of the issues you had in getting this up and running and how long it took, but then, like my parents were, crazy theosophist, so I can't help have a bit of like hoop to do like spiritual kind of stuff. And I I hear all that and I was like, well clearly it just wasn't meant to work. Until you if you're doing a body horror film and you happen to get a hen and of special effects
0: guy. Yeah. It's yeah things are working out. It is it that's a very I agree with that on like a cosmic frequency. Mm. No, because like <laughs> Gabe wasn't the first effects pe- person I reached out to. In the earlier pre-production years. I had two producers on this. Uh, they're also, they're, they're people I'd worked with prior and brought on and they knew an effects team an up and coming effects team. And so I paid these two effects artists out of my own pocket, $500, not uh, just to get them started.
1: Hmm.
0: And they started building their puppets and they realized it was more complicated than they thought. And they got embarrassed. And instead of telling us this, they vanished. And we had to track them down, I had to get my money back. We lost half a year of pre production time on that. And it was just a complete at the time nightmare. But speaking to theosophical and rhythms or frequencies, this stress and frustration I had in that half year time, I felt like a failure to the film, but I had more time to revise the script. Mm. So initially in the script, Chris was just a standard asshole dude. He wasn't a failed writer. It wasn't until I felt like I failed my story that I wrote in that he was a failed writer, which gave it a deeper, stronger mental connection to me and meant by the time I sent that version of the script to Gabe, it had more psychological claws for him to sink into, which he liked, which led to a better story, which led to a better film. And yeah, I'm so glad those effects artists screwed me over because if they had stayed, there's no way in hell they would have had puppets by Gabe or things that look good. So it was definitely one of those things where it took forever and it was a complete nightmare, but it became what it had to be, in a very good way in the end.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: <coughs> Excuse me, super flamy today. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. Anyway, still waking up. Um, yeah, that, that's <laughs> had, had me having a thought. What was it? a couple of different mm. thoughts? Ah, uh, yeah. I wanted. It actually ties in well with I was watching, you an early short uh, music short of yours for the Doofus oh Petrus? yeah i
0: can talk about doofus i fucking i love doofus yeah uh you're probably talking about the tutu music video
2: it was the or was that, it the
0: silly baboon
2: no it was the w- one with your busted bolex
0: oh yeah where it's just like totally
2: <laughs> flickery and it's all stop yeah, motion yeah.
0: so so doofus anytime i got a chance to plug doofus i will doofus is an amazing uh Anti-folk, freak folk, rock experimental band out of Rochester, New York. Uh, They've been going on since like late 1990s, early 2000s. They're sort of a rotating cast and crew of weirdos, but always at their center is the lead singer-songwriter. His name is, uh, the name he goes by is Seth Quankmeyer Faragolzia. (laughs) And uh, back in the day, uh, oh God, there are several musicians, singer-songwriters who went on. To become famous who started in doofus their names might come to me later but anyway when i was a kid i went to a summer creative arts camp in pennsylvania called camp balabay and the main reason i went there was they taught stop motion animation they had a an animation teacher this is yeah like 2000 okay and uh this teacher was an artsy fartsy weirdo from new york city who was an early fan of this doofus band so he played the early burn cdrs of doofus so I learned stop motion to the background music of this crazy, random, underground Rochester, New York band. So I became friends with them on early Facebook. And uh, by the time I was in college, they'd come out with some new albums and I wanted to do music videos for them. And uh, I had some extra 60 millimeter footage or in, the, in my camera. I did a stop motion on 60 millimeter called Eye Contact. That's probably my favorite short from college. But there was more film left over. So I just was... I just animated those objects and that was just like weird shit I had in my uh dorm room. Mm. And then when the footage came back, there had been a problem with the Bolex camera. The registration claws weren't pulling the frames down. So it was all flickery and fucked up. And I was like, well shit, I'll just put this to the music that I grew up learning <clears> stop <throat> motion on, just for the hell of it. And so that that is what that is, and then I went on to do an official stop motion music video for that band later that summer called Tutu, mm-hmm. which is very colorful and claymation. And uh, yeah, doofus uh, and Seth, he his latest band is called Multi Bird. They just put out their first album earlier this year, and he's just he's just like a hero of mine. He's he's true to his strange music and art and wild voice, and you know he's never become a big. He's not like a cultural big thing, but. He's just this like constant creative force. And if I ever have the ability to make a proper feature film that needs some music, I want to put doofus music in there to <laughs> elevate his signal and pay him properly mm. for his art.
2: Excellent. Well, that's really interesting. I'll yeah look into more of this stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, I believe the majority of his uh, discography you could find on Spotify, but even probably better on Bandcamp. He has everything listed.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So i Watching that, and then what was one of the shorts? It was one of the other ones with Charles, your lead actor from Malacostra
0: uh, Oh, Charlie Pecororo, uh, Last yep. Remnants?
2: Yeah. Uh, no, the one was, in the diner. No, I, I was going for your weird oh.
0: stuff. <laughs> it was... Oh, so, Growth? Yes. With the weird little head? Yep. <laughs> Oh, man, you went a deep cut. You are a deep diver. I'm quite impressed. I don't think anyone has actually watched any of those, I really.
2: I, I was like, I'm going, I'm going for these uh, weird little things that just catch my I eye to it. see what to get, as I like, get a bit of a cross-section when I didn't have enough time to yeah. go through everything. For sure, for sure. Uh, so, but that, that, because the, you know, that's... <laughs> I actually had to go back and watch the end again. I was like, did I miss anything? Oh, no, that's the end. Okay, cool. But the, <laughs> uh, the using subtitles underneath, I hmm. wondered about that because it works as a deliberate choice, but it also felt like it might be you trying to deal with an issue. And I just watched the Bolex one where you had this issue and you were very upfront with, <clears and>, My <throat> camera's fucked. Sorry about yes. this. And rolling with it and making it work yeah. as part of it. Yes. You feel like that someone is- who is willing and able, which isn't always the case, to go, This is a problem. Either incorporate it or yes. over, like, yeah.
0: I yeah no for sure I feel like much to my chagrin a lot of what people consider my aesthetic has been less intentional and more just me rolling with whatever shit's been thrown my way or problems like I said I had an entire film stolen and I had to reshoot it I've had cameras break on me I've had health issues I've I've had to animate when I didn't have proper materials so like the handmade but yeah with growth yeah I that was shot on the mini DV camera I had at the time and there was a glitch with the camera's internal audio recorder where everything was recorded at like 50% of volume. It should have been. And I'm editing this in early final or mid-level final cut seven. So to, if I push the audio up, it would just, mm-hmm. so I'm like, Oh shit. And speaking to this even worse, I was already friends with Charlie Pecororo when that was shot. But the, the actress in there, I didn't know, and I asked Charlie, I was like, do you have any actresses you have a rapport with? Because I'd like someone for this. So he reached out to her and connected me up, and so I emailed her, and I was like, hey, would you like to do this experimental short with Charlie and I? Here's the script, give it a read. She emailed back, great. Uh, she showed up on the day cranky and mean and hadn't actually read the script. She hadn't read the email, didn't realize there was a script, and she was very pissed that she had to then remember on the spot trying to do these lines which is why her performance is even more sharp because she just didn't know what to make of it hadn't done her due diligence beforehand and yeah so she was a i've never worked with her since i've never seen her since we shot that afternoon i don't even remember what her name is um and so it was just one of those things where like yeah the camera was broke so i'm like I guess I have to put subtitles in and that'll just become the aesthetic one way or the other. And that's been a lot of my work
2: (laughs) Yeah, I the couple of films I worked on with a friend I was definitely the chaotic Like, you know, we can just roll with this and make it stranger and they were like, no, it has to be like this I'm like, okay
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've learned the hard way that A film will always become the film it's supposed to be whether you want to or not like you write the script and the script dies when you shoot it and becomes what it has to on the set. And if you hold, if you, you know, if you're like, no, we got to shoot the script, we got to do the thing we have to, you're going to kill yourself and you're yeah. going to kill the film. And even with Malika Straka, I learned that we were running over time. Cause of course we were. So we had to cut out. We, I had one scene in the script where you see that Sophie had just, her water just broke. Mm. And so she runs into the bath. excuse me, the kitchen. And she's like, Chris, my water just broke. And Chris disassociating. He's washing dishes in the sink and the water's running. And he's looking, he's like, Our water's fine, Sophie. <laughs> and then she's like, No, no, my water's broke. And then he's like, Oh shit. And I thought that was such a funny comedic moment, but we were running out of time. The producer is like, We need to cut something. Can we cut this? And I just I was just like, Yes. And with that scene gone, it led to the best edit in the whole film, where it goes from him saying, I don't feel anything. The bam, her screaming, and you are immediately in the in in it, mm. in the birth. So yeah, rolling with the punches, it kind of hurts to do it in the moment, but you can't you can't keep a stranglehold on the script. It becomes what it has to become. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's definitely the case. There's so many bits that we've talked about that overlap with our pre- my previous conversation with. Roger and Christine yeah. from the marshes um, where they're shooting an independent film like three hours mm-hmm. outside of Sydney in a location that takes an hour and a half to drive to oh, each day. It's rough. <laughs> that's rough. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I know the feeling like the, the, the outside location from Alcastraca, that was like a 40, 50 minute drive out of LA. It was at the base of the Los Angeles Crest Forest mountain range here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that location, I wish we could have filmed in the other direction that stream was on the grounds of an abandoned Buddhist monastery. So there are all these creepy full-scale Buddhist monk statues everywhere, but they were crumbling and some of the heads had been knocked off. And the whole thing was scheduled to be demolished like a month later. So probably none of it's there anymore. And I... It just that wasn't the film, we couldn't shoot it, but it was such a weird place.
2: Oh. As you call mm. somebody up and say, Bring a camera down, we're gonna plan nine this. Just shoot fifteen I minutes. I of wish,
0: money. I wish. Uh, <laughs> if it had been public land, if we could have snuck onto it again, I would have, but it was a it was a very hard location to get. It was gated, it was a whole complex.
2: Now yeah. Uh, yeah, going back a bit, I do I guess I, I, do, I meant to ask earlier, what what mm. is it like to be to grow up as a YouTube person? Because I've well, been on I've been on Twitter for ten years, and well, that's so been, have I. yeah, that's been my only really consistent for that longer period. But it's sure. not the same. It's still me yeah. just being an yeah. old man yelling into the. For sure. <laughs> the well,
0: well, I, I, let me just say this straight. I don't consider. I hate YouTube. I hate what it's become. It's destroyed the internet. It's destroyed people's attention spans. Gen Z is fucked in the head because of YouTube and then all social media. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I was born in nineteen. 19- Eighty-six, so i'm an elder millennial i'm like of the last age group to have been born before the internet was a thing so similar you're, you've got a couple years on me but same difference so like youtube started my freshman year of college okay and that comedy troupe i was in they my friends made the first mashup video period on the internet it's called broke back to the future uh they made that trailer and it became like the first viral thing on youtube but it was so early on YouTube where they didn't even upload that onto the comedy, uh, the comedy group's account. They just put it up on a friend's account, so they didn't really understand what it was. Hmm. And so, yeah, I have all my stuff on YouTube, but I don't, I don't really add new stuff to it. Um, I've, I've, you know, Vimeo is where the things I feel the most connected to are, and some of my earlier stuff I've uploaded on Vimeo in a slightly higher quality, but. The YouTube, YouTube, it's like my vestigial tale. It's like an archive of my history, but yeah, I, I hate YouTube, and uh, it's just now I just watch it for like news clips and late night talk shows, and, mm. you know. But I'm glad, I'm glad all my stuff is there, and sometimes I scroll back and get a kick out of it. But yeah, I, I Vimeo is, and I don't like Vimeo now either, and I have my own grumps and gripes about that. But, but it was, it was interesting. Uh, My friends were like, shit, if we just were a couple years younger and we were putting up our stuff on YouTube when it became bigger, I don't know. I feel like I either should have been born 20 years earlier or like a a decade later. I don't know. I just I feel like I'm slightly misplaced in time because my interests skewed towards the cinema that was able to be made in the 70s and 80s when there was a financial institutions in America to allow for mid-level, more unique, individualized uh, experiences. But By the time I grew up, like, yeah, I just, I feel like I missed, I don't know, it's, I'm just frustrated by time, Mm -hmm. I guess is what it comes down to in a general sense.
2: You're certainly not alone in that. Like, it's well, for pretty sure. for us people caught in this transition period. Yeah. i like, yeah, I'm very being just that little bit older. I just never even had that kind of not being a computer. I didn't have we didn't have a computer till I was right, right, 15 or 16. And that was partly mm. because we were just so buddy poor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so I was like, but I've you know, I was like on live journal and shit way back in the day. I was on Zanga myself
0: for a long time. Then oh, I migrated to LiveJournal. <laughs> I think
2: Min.com when they put up, uh, yeah. Wow. The the I was on those boards from the day the Fragile was. Whenever they like opened the boards originally, that was my first engagement. But it's lots of more broken up and things that are gone now. So I, I, oh, I still have sure. a bit of that old world experience of like the history is departed. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's I yeah I feel like I came of age on a big ugh, on a Harry Potter mess board of all loathsome things and you know I was the moderator of the creative writing subsection and uh I got so tired of all the bullshit fan writing other people are doing that I wrote spoof fan writings just to annoy people and it was like it was like a whole ecosystem of weird teenagers learning to be who they were and yeah yeah, all that is faded away in the mist
2: thank goodness (laughs)
0: maybe for the best but still yeah
2: but yeah there is now it's hard being a creative because you have to be a marketer as
0: well yeah. yeah oh my god and i learned <laughs> that the hard way with doing these fundraisers especially from alka straka mm. i learned to be pretty good at them i feel like i'm better at fundraisers than most but it also helped i've been on twitter so long that you know the people want to do a crowd fund but if you don't have the crowd already mm. you're screaming into the void and even when you do have the crowd it's a lot of void screaming and you have to be careful about it but it's exhausting and yeah a decade in la has made me better at it, but I still don't want to do it. I wish to not have to. I hope never to do another fundraiser again. I didn't want to do one after Malika Straka, and I did, but that was with a fellow writer producer who stayed the course. So I wasn't the only one being the dancing monkey online about it. Yeah, and uh, I but think, it's it's a lot.
2: I think that is very key is figuring out how to you know to have a group of people who can kind of take that bundle and run with it uh some sort of you know network definitely helps even just beyond the yeah. fans just like some yeah. people who can
3: yeah keep that yeah.
2: ball rolling i know doing the podcast like part of me getting into this was like i'm tired and should not be relied upon so as
0: long as we can do it within the constraints <laughs> of me being sure. tired and unreliable no, it's all good we all are and we all are but we all got to reach out and yeah like gotta keep the ball i've been rolling. on like god speaking like you said a decade on twitter it's definitely rotted my brain but i've also met i've met some friends through it and good people and uh, creative compatriots and
1: yeah.
0: uh there's an artist in england who came across me randomly his name is chris allsaw and he does these amazing realistic hand-drawn like etched things of surreal imagery and uh he just liked my script so he's he started doing just some concept art for me just because he wanted to be involved hmm. and then the writer director of the stop motion i'm producing loved his art so much he's incorporated his art into the stop motion as like chapter headers that are going to happen throughout the short so now he's getting like paid professional work and fellows in england we've never met so that's all thanks to twitter so yeah twitter can make it, it's angry and it's tough but I, for me i do my damnedest not to respond to anything negative that doesn't deal with me and i also know like so many people don't actually read or look at other people's stuff so like If I come across a review and I like it, I'll write the person and say like, that was spot on or I I really enjoyed this. And I tell you, you can make someone's day really easy. And it stands out all the more because like, what? Someone's being nice on Twitter. So I think not that it was like me trying to be sneaky, but after being a friendly face comparatively to others, I think that's what helped the Malika Straco fundraiser because I had critics and reviewers retweet my fundraiser stuff. and. They never retweet that because they don't want to open those floodgates. But, uh, so at Twitter, it can be good, sort of, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
2: I, I've burned out on it for a bit and actually being mm. angry is what brought it back to life for me. And you've, Interesting. you've, you've noticed that <laughs> a little bit,
0: a little bit, maybe. Yeah.
2: It is my vent yeah. space a little. Uh, and sure. I kind of, I don't, I, I think we actually haven't even plugged our Twitter handles on the podcast. Oh, uh because it was like it's not that I hide it or anything. It's on the it's it's out there, but it's right. um. I, if you're, Baby if, steps. If you're coming to me for films, I try to think about films on Twitter, and then I end up just right. swearing at politicians right. again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, well, it's tough because like the reality is in such a shitty space right now, and the pop like what you have happening in Australia is pretty much like the exact it's like you're just an antipodal America. Like mm. your politicians are just as corrupt and fucked here in America. So like, yeah, I'd be surprised. All the Australian friends I know are just as angry and just as mad as you are. I coincidentally, uh, a, a new couple moved into my building. I live in here in LA just like a couple of months ago. And turns out they just also happen to be Australian filmmakers who moved here like a year ago. And the, the fellow, he does like body horror and creepy stuff. His name is Josh Zamet and uh he has this really cool long short I'll send you the link you might get yeah. a kick out of it like what are the odds but yeah it's and uh I neighbors who used to live next to me it was uh another Australian filmmaking couple um it was one of the spirit brothers and his wife oh, yeah. and so I'm friends with them a little they've moved into the valley Again, like, what am I this is a tangent but I don't know I just I feel like whenever I meet Australians I click with them well and I think it's cuz like we're all just mad at similar political situations, and I don't know. Or maybe I just luckily have met a lot of Australians who like the same stuff. I don't know, but you're like Legion. You guys are everywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do.
2: We do spread a bolt of pie. <laughs> I think it's it, to, to go outside of film for a second and go back to hippy dippy weird shit. Sure. <laughs> uh, there's a author, David Tacey, who's a Jungian, mm-hmm. and I studied okay. under him at university. He wrote a couple of books on like the spirituality revolution the uptake Mm. on spirituality this was 20 25 years ago and i remember he said one of the big problems in australia is that we don't belong here like we've come in and taken over this space and it's same as america that's for sure and you guys have had a lot longer to settle in and feel Mm -hmm. like you belong there But that's the problem. Yeah, (laughs) whatever, you know, energies we have still aren't quite connected to the land and the place. And he always attributed how Australians do tend to travel. We are big international backpackers, and people disappear yeah. for five or six years living. It's pretty common here to be living elsewhere at some point in your life. I did it. I mean, you know, I was poor as shit and didn't do anything with my life, and still managed to live a year in Vienna when I was oh, wow. like a teenager. Well, that's a
0: beautiful, beautiful place yeah. to live. But no, no it's, I think
2: it's that's... He, he he did very much attribute it to this kind of not necessarily you're not thinking don't want to use the word colonization but that's what we it is what it is but it yeah. wasn't necessarily our colonization it was that we had yeah. never attempted to bring ourselves to the country and so yeah. we always felt displaced which I know you said yeah. before you feel kind of displaced in LA but I think it's I think Americans and Australians are just displaced people
0: <laughs> no that's I think that's a very fair assessment and the the youngian analysis makes a lot of sense i mean i mean yeah when you displace the dreaming, you got to dream of other places to go. Yeah, and we haven't really oh replaced, we replaced it with America, <laughs> <laughs> which is that's that's a big problem too. Yeah, don't but, do that. yeah it's it's so funny because yeah, like I said, I, I'm inherently American. I was born in New Jersey, for Christ's sakes. Um, <laughs> but my interests have always skewed towards films from elsewhere, to the point where, yeah, I don't know. I, I this summer I spent in Europe and in Prague, like. Yeah, I'm not from there, but I, I, I felt, I did felt like a cultural kinship because it was the stuff from there that had shaped me the most. And uh, I mean, now th- the fact that we're all stuck here—I mean, we americans we stuck here. We can't travel because of the virus and how poorly our government has managed it. Like, it kills me. I went from—I traveled more than I ever—I'd flown more than I'd ever had the last year or two with the fest circuit from Alcatraz,
1: hmm.
0: and now there's we can't. And uh, I feel like I, I feel. Like America is pretty much close to over, like for real. And I'm just I hate the feeling that we're all just gonna go down with this with sink with the ship. I would the dream and all my creative film friends here in LA, we're all dreaming of getting connected to a project that has enough power to shoot elsewhere, fly over for the project, and then just stay there, even if it's illegal or sneaky, and just Like, if I could snap my fingers and live in New Zealand, where they've managed the virus and have leaders that believe in science and actually like their populace, for fuck's sake, I would. I'd leave all the crazy collectibles and weird objects I've amassed over a decade. I would leave it, and that's some...
2: yeah, I don't don't know if it... I mean, it must happen there as well, but I feel like every time we've had, like, Commonwealth Games or an Olympics Games or something, there's always at least one or two... Uh, countries that just go missing before they go home and it's like right, yeah, yeah, yeah. filmmaking is going to become the new
0: sports teams and bailing on it i i sincerely it's it's funny like my joke used to be that i just want to make at least one feature before the end of the world mm. and then this year it's like what's were my was i thinking hoping too much i don't i don't know like I didn't want to make another short after Malika Straka. Then I made another short because a writer approached me, and I thought this would be a fun experiment to write or direct another person's script. And if I don't do it, it'll mean a year of stressing about the Malika Straka Fest circuit without anything else to do. So I did this other short, When We Dance. I forget if I even sent it to you.
2: I haven't. I saw the the trailer. I'll
0: I'll send you the teaser link. It's, it's, It's not horror... It's a romantic tragedy with kind of supernatural twilight zony elements. Hmm. I think it's a it's a lovely piece, but it's not a brain baby like Malika Straka. It was the writer allowed me to revise the script, so I made it a little bit more obsessive and quirky in me, but it was it was it was more of an experiment. I, I like it, but it's again, it's not as personal. But and now, yeah, I, I had I had another feature I was writing that I wanted to be my first feature to shoot this year, back in New Jersey, based in and around locations. I have access to through my parents and their community theater. I thought that would be, you know, not mumble core, but like low budget, skeletal crew, indie horror film, Hmm. supernatural body horror, of course, but there was no way to safely shoot it. So I spent this year revising it and making it bigger and more dramatic on the page, hoping that if it reads bigger, maybe it'll get interest to be produced later, but who knows? So I have another short beyond the stop motion one I'm producing that I've written, that i want to make and it could be made safely, but again, that's a budget and I don't want to do a fundraiser. I've submitted to a couple of those uh, short film uh, uh, fundraiser, you know, uh, film fund things. Mm And we'll see. I've never ever had much luck with fest uh, competitions or funds, but I don't know. I just, I don't want to do another fundraiser again, (laughs) nor do I want to put several thousand dollars onto a credit card. Mm. Uh, I could, but that's definitely a last resort. It's just tough. It's, it's tough. Most of this year, I've just spent alone in the apartment writing. And uh, I'm definitely a better screenwriter than I was in 2019. But to what end? I have no agent, I have no manager. And every unwrapped person is emailing and querying all the more hard right now. Mm. And so I don't want to get lost in that shuffle. So I don't know. It's just it's a weird time.
2: Yeah, again, a transition time. Lots of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. you know, there are a lot of there's positives in there because it's like you have dealt with this before. You have dealt yeah. with things grinding into halt and it leading to better yeah. things. I mean, is, For sure. I, I say these things like, you know, I'm just saying to our audience, like, <laughs> everybody needs to remember that everybody's in the same boat. And there is like... Very true. If, you know, if we do manage to not kill the world in 15 years... I think this could yeah. be a good launching pad trajectory to have, to build those strengths,
0: to move on For to sure. other things, make connections. Yeah. Uh, I, I I agree. I agree. And you have to keep that hope alive, even if it feels hopeless or pointless. Uh, like I said, I have five or six feature screenplays now that I've spent all year revising. And they're the best they have ever been. And I'm very excited about them. And I think they'll get out there and, One, one, it has some some percolation right now. We'll talk off the record. Uh, (laughs) And the others, I mean, you might have seen me post that, but the biggest dream I want to do is like, it's this huge period piece set on the Isle of Man in the 1930s. So, Mm. you know, that's like a once I have some clout and some credit. But (laughs) here's hoping I get to do it, because that's been a dream since I was a kid to do that story. Yeah, excellent.
2: Um, I'm trying to think what else. What else did I have to say?
1: You
2: know. Uh, yeah, I wanted to because we, as I said to you, we've talked uh, on the regular episodes. We're doing for Halloween. We're doing <laughs> the witch on one week, which in cinema I should say, right? And then the uncanny. We're doing next week. Um, at this stage, I haven't. Re- we've not recorded the witch one. Um, I'm still actually. You know, you've you've read more of that article I sent you than I have because I've been in skim mode trying to find things for sure. the uncanny stuff yeah. and. But you're like Melichostracker is a hundred percent the uncanny. With the that un- yeah. the unheimlich of something that uh, is Oh, yeah, sure. uh,
0: yeah, uh I I love I'm big into the concept of the uncanny or the, the unheimlich and the kind of yeah, that the German uncomfortableness. Uh I and I think that speaks to vampire too, where it's this eerie, uncomfortable, like it's like a I feel like vampire Vampire is probably the best cinematic feature film equivalent of the feeling of a dream I've ever seen. And then the best short film of a dream is Meshes of the Afternoon. Like those two get the uncanny, and the, the uncanny is eerie. It's, it's, it's a more uncomfortable and it's, it's inherently psychological, whether it explicitly states it or not. And yeah, I think, I feel like I guess all my films speak to the uncanny, whether they're filmed yet or not because i tend to write things that are inherently from one point of view for better or for worse and they're an unreliable narrator because we're all like reality reality is what's outside of us it's the space between two people we have the unfortunate we we interpret what we see through our brain and how that's interpreted in our own history and our mood so the way i see reality isn't reality nor is it yours it's 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 the space in between. And that's what's fun about film, or genre film in particular, is you can explore these psychological, uncanny, eerie elements through genre cinema, through visual metaphor, and do something that's more exciting and more fun to look at than just a straight-up psychological drama. Mm. Like, I feel like it's the best of both worlds, artistically and creatively, and hor- horror speaks to that. And, but then horror is a wide umbrella. Like To that article, I, I read the article, and it's funny, because kind of like what you said, I agreed with what he was saying, but I also thought he was an arrogant son of a bitch. And like pretty much he took 22 pages to get down to his thesis boiled down to some horror is bad. Some horror is very good. Horror is different than sci-fi. It's like, you yeah, no shit, Sherlock, like, come on. But that, that's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, 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 academic writing in general, they can get lost in the weeds. But that's kind of what I like about horror is hard to be the dumbest, you know, Horror could be things and it's entertaining and weird and makes no sense and engages your brain in one way. Or horror can be vampire where it's deeply effective and strange and moody and you can't quite put your finger on it. And I guess I kind of, not that I want to, but I feel like my works exist halfway in the middle. Hmm. Like I said earlier, I wanted Malika Straka to be a straight, serious, dark, bleak, bleak drama horror. And it ended up being... A horror comedy where it's funny as hell even though the main characters are taking it serious but the fact that he's so serious is what makes it funny and i have to kind of accept that in my work that no matter what i do my work is always going to be a little funnier than maybe i want it to but that's okay that's who i am i mm. have to roll with that mm.
2: there's a really great book it's been forever since i read it called laughing and screaming it's an academic mm. book about the relationship of horror and comedy interesting and how yeah, I checked that out pretty uh, inextricable like they they're bound yeah. together in how we respond and react both For physiologically sure. and also in what we create and i think yeah i definitely lean into those horror films that are like i i didn't bring it up on our witch episode but i,
1: mm.
2: I before i saw the lighthouse uh, robert eggers second mm. film lighthouse and,
0: was hysterical
2: oh yeah i love i mm. i've seen it twice and the, the first time I was laughing quite a bit, Same with the second time I was, I went hammered with a friend at like a late, late session <laughs> nice, and we just sat yeah. in front row and I just roared with laughter. But before I saw it and I heard these reports saying, oh, it's a comedy and people are like, what? It's funny? What? And I watched the trailer like, and then I rewatched The Witch and I was like, I oh, know that makes sense because I think The Witch is a comedy as well. It's just not funny. <laughs> but the, that,
0: is a, that is an interesting it, distinction and I, I, I kind of see where you're going with it and the humor comes from how much this family believes what they believe, even though they're wrong, mm. but then they're right within yeah. the, the witch, but for the wrong reasons, because there is a witch and it's real. And the end reveals it, but it, it's a good thing, not a bad. And they kill themselves because of their stupid beliefs. They get kicked out of their religious compound because they're too into their religion. Like, and that's true. and That is funny. And yeah, I guess we're on a similar wavelength still because, I think some of the funniest comedies for me are the saddest. I think one of the funniest comedies or American comedies ever made at least is being John Malkovich because mm-hmm. it's so horribly sad and awkward. And that's the funniest thing of all to yeah.
2: me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. I, that's the thing that always sticks in me in the, in the is that well, try not to destroy all it too much, but the end of that film is just that oh, final God, scene yeah. is just like,
0: uh, yeah. The, uh, it...
2: well, it's, I think it's also, um, the hang on, give my thoughts. Um, yeah, the, the 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 with something like the witch, it's that the joke is man. It's just mm. perhaps especially for that reason we can't always laugh at it. The lighthouse certainly sets it up to invite that humour more, whereas the yeah. Witch is like, no, it's funny. It's just like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Same with I like, just rewatched uh, Motel Hell for Projection Booth
0: i i just watched that actually surprisingly for the first time like a week or two ago it's one of those things where i felt like i'd always seen it because i knew Mm. the famous image and the fangoria cover and then i saw it it was on prime and i'm like oh i'll just rewatch it and i started i'm like i i haven't seen this I just cultural osmosis thought i did that's a funny weird one The, the heads in the garden with the throats cut and the synth music playing like some 70s trippy plant experiment it's it's not a good film, but it's kind of great at oh. the same time.
1: I'll
2: I'll let I'll let that pass because you've only seen it once. I think you'll find yourself revisiting it or show it you to know, other it's people. Settle into it, yeah, yeah. And I I've seen it like oh, I don't know ten times oh, yeah. now. Okay, okay, and it's one of my favorite cannibal films. Interesting, uh, and nice. it, I think it. Yeah, you mentioned that again hippy dippy but there's also capitalism in there and it's like it actually oh, for sure. it, it fused a lot of these weird elements that at the time people weren't seeing were already in the process of being fused
0: <laughs> that's right that's a very that's a very good point and that also speaks to what's so fun is a lot of these things that were disregarded as just genre exploitation mm. it's like no every film is inherently a reflection of what's going on at the time whether they're conscious of it or not and yeah. sometimes they're conscious of it but are clever about it and uh especially with horror. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it should be a carnival mirror to the awkward reality of whatever it was made in.
2: Yeah, I highly recommend it. I think it's due maybe next, maybe in this week. Maybe i spoiled spoil mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah, uh, Motel Hell, the projection booth episode was pretty okay. fascinating because yeah. there's a lot of details in the background that I didn't know. That, Fantastic, yeah, i it out. made it even more interesting to me. I might even have to shoot you the original screenplay before the English director came on because it's quite oh, a different yeah. film. <laughs> interesting,
0: interesting. It's, it's almost like oh. a Zucker
2: Brothers film in the original script. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, oh. But, yeah, that's another one where it's like, I mean, you know, again, I, I, I don't, do not spoil the ending because it's one of the greatest punchlines in cinema, but I, the film could almost yeah. be just a set-up for a single joke. Yeah, that's true. The way it plays with that comedy of humans and people and the society we build, very much like The Witch and The Lighthouse in its oddball way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what was the other thought? Hang on. Um, oh, yeah. So, is, uh, Mello, so the, the article we were talking about was Children of the Light by Bruce F. Carwin, which I stumbled across in my research recently, and I think I read it for my thesis like 10 years ago. But, yeah, yeah, essentially he's arguing that there's good and bad horror and that a good horror film is one that uh, elevates its audience or sort of helps them to process things. Right. uh, Whereas a bad horror film is one that just terrorises an audience and then dumps them out without having stitched Mm -hmm. everything back up. Do you think Malak Strucker is a good horror film or a bad horror film based on Bruce's... (laughs)
0: It was a good horror film for me because I personally exercised my fears of fatherhood and self-worth and creative aspirations. I got it out of my system. It elevated me. I feel like I'm a more comfortable person who's less afraid of those elements and less afraid of being a failure. But as to whether it's good or not to an audience, it really depends on on the audience members. I've had people react extremely negatively to it, Mm. hated it, whether personally or just online. (laughs) I've had people really like it and it's, that's fine. It's up to them. I think some people can look at it and find it an interesting psychological thing and get those themes and feel elevated and others can just be put off by the baby killing. And whether that's personal to them or not, you know, I've had, I've had people react to it who are like, wow, you, you really show that postpartum depression can happen in a man and not just a woman, mm-hmm. more power to you They're, This needs to be shown. And then I've had people say like, fuck you. How dare you? Don't you know that? the death of a baby is the worst thing ever. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I wrote it. I wanted to explore that. That was the scariest thing to me. It's like, it's 2 parts. It's like, the worst fear would be being in a marriage with the wrong person and you can't get out of it. And also losing your mind for whatever reason to the point where you don't see what's real. And yeah, could you imagine inadvertently killing your own child? It's horrible. Hmm. So I do think when people come away from it thinking I was doing it, I've had some really mean reviews that they're like, this is just exploitative shock and it's it's obvious from the first scene what's going to happen in the end. And I'm like, A, yeah, that's a point to a point. He's a bullshit author, horror writer. What is he going to do with a crawdad? He's going to boil it. And the feature does that a little differently. huh? But, um, yeah, people have the right to their individual response. But for me, it was definitely a, a good elevated experience.
2: Well, yeah. I think that's a lot of where my issue with, Bruce Carwin's Kerwin, writing is that, I, as you said, mm-hmm. it's it's like it's really good stuff to state. To then realize what's wrong with it, and it yes. does that. I think that there's that good and bad is actually an interesting. I definitely lean on towards his idea of good is bullshit, <laughs> but um, <clears> then <throat> he's right because that's what horror was doing for a very long time. That it had to be restored. That everything the the return of the pre- repressed then had to be repressed again. Yeah. And it's, you know, with the. It's really. I mean, the Europeans were already messing with that a fair bit, but oh, I mean, sure. America blows the doors off it with the 70s Night of Living Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie, yeah. with no yeah. neat ending, no cleaning up. Everything mm-hmm. just continues on. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that horror is at a problem where it leans too much on that, just as it might lean too much on tidying everything up. But. I think that what you were saying is, like, that, yeah, Malacostica is a bad horror film from Bruce Carwin's perspective, but it's because you're dealing with those things and you're not Mm -hmm. dealing with them in answerable ways because there aren't answers to them. The answer is to create the art that deals with it. Yeah. Good horror films create the art and then say, but it's fine. Whereas Mm -hmm. I like that your film is very much... It's not fine because another person's going to be dealing with this problem. Another person's mm-hmm. going to be dealing you with know, this. You know, 10 years from now, there's going to be a, another person like you making some crazy film about fatherhood and a creative frozen. It's going to be a completely for different sure. film done a completely different style. But everybody yeah, goes I, through oh, this.
0: God, I hope so. I hope someone <laughs> in the future gets everything compared to Malcolm Straka like I got it compared to Eraserhead. <laughs> Which I love Eraserhead, but for me, this is the anti-Eraserhead because yeah. there's true... Trump in eraserhead, Henry Spencer's rewarded for transgressing against his baby. Mm. He ends up in heaven in the in the in the, the unified field, as Lynch would say, and he's <laughs> hugging the lady and he wins. And I love that film, but that's bullshit. That's some wish fulfillment. Because like, no, that's so with Malkusranka, for me the horror is it's in the real world. Clearly, Chris is insane. And we end with him realizing what he's done to his real baby. That's the horror. Mm. And uh so yeah. <laughs> I think
2: watching it a second time, because of how you've put it together, mm-hmm. it still works. Knowing, I mean, I kind of, I had an inkling where it was going anyway the first time. Yeah, yeah. But then yeah. the second time it was like, no, it still works there because the horror starts possibly even earlier because you definitely mm-hmm. know where it's heading.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's all right.
2: Um, yeah, so I, I, I think, yeah, especially at the moment, you know, there's lots of talk about what is horror, what's not. That that I will properly read the article and we'll keep that as a further like discussion sure. at some point. Um, oh man, yeah, I've just been trying to find stuff for the Uncanny and that was just, but yeah, the, the I was going to say, um, I had another thought. Oh man, need more coffee. Um, something about Malacastro. give us a second. Sure, sure. Horror. Um, oh man, my brain's just going to blank right okay maybe switch over to something else um hmm. (laughs) yeah my brain just switched off
1: that's
2: all right (laughs) um maybe we should do some halloween kind of pics of something seeing how this will be going out next Mm. week okay yeah um any sort of recommendations for films that you love to watch at this time of the year that maybe aren't so well known? I
0: don't know. I mean, I'm all over the place, but for Halloween, I think perhaps my favorite Halloweeny film of all time in a way is a Ernest scared, stupid (laughs) I fucking love Ernest scared, stupid. I saw it when it came out in theaters as a kid and I love it. And, it's like the perfect combination just the that small town halloween decked out production design then Ernest is just such a weird american comedy character jim varney underrated performer and also there's awesome animatronic troll goblin-ish monsters in that Mm -hmm. and if i remember correctly they they turn children into miniature wooden sculptures that like trap their souls forever so it's it's so on the one hand very light and goofy but then like there are real stakes and danger and as a kid i was like holy shit this is awesome and it has the best uh, Halloween-y credit sequence of all time where it's it's a it's a mashed up supercut of all sorts of crazy moments from black, black and white horror films intercut with close ups of jim varney just making weird faces just like and it just it's hysterical so now it's not spooky or classic but that, that's like that's like american halloween for me just like ridiculous um
2: yeah. yeah this is this is more evidence to back up my thesis that you have a terrible taste in comedies like i do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've, I, I've i've still got my vhs copy of that nice, nice.
0: Uh, and you've got
2: yeah eartha Kitt as well you get eartha Kitt that's as an right. old witch That's
0: right she's in the junkyard and it's in a talk about great production design yeah, yeah i'm definitely I'm definitely going to rewatch that soon.
2: Yeah, I rewatched it with some friends a couple of like I think two years ago, and I was like, "Oh no, this is this actually is good. Like, it's an actually good film." (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's that's what I remember. I I recently watched the new Adam Sandler Halloween comedy, Hubie Halloween, just because I wanted to have an evening where I didn't think about anything, and it's dumb bullshit. And I was like, it was like him trying to do Ernest Scared Stupid, but without the awesome animatronics, and it's it's bad. I'm not saying watch it, but Good for him. He got to make a film set a film in Salem set at Halloween. Like, yeah, if I had the money to just make a dumb film with my friends and film in Salem, I'd do the same. So no, you know, more power. Yeah, but oh god, I mean, one of my favorite all time old fashioned horror films that's spooky and autumnal and creepy is a uh, Night of the Demon, mm-hmm. Curse of the Deming, depending on what cut. I have the Indicator Blu Ray of that, and it's one of my. I just call it the Indicator. I love Indicator and their packaging design is always the best, too. Mm -hmm. I like how they rely on the vintage look. Um, So, that film is really great up there.
2: Uh, We talked about that briefly in our Witch ah, episode from last week. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. Good, good. Because we talked about Night of the Eagle as well, Burn Witch. Oh,
0: I haven't seen that yet. It's in my queue. I just keep forgetting to. Press play. Yeah, I've heard great that, things about it's it. It's very yeah.
2: similar to, it kind of takes the original Fritz Lieber book, but well to the, right. the M.R. James. Interesting. Interesting. Of the Interesting. So yeah, yeah cause I, I, I haven't seen night of the demon in a very long time. we have got the indicator blue here in my housemate right. does, so I've got to Oh, definitely it.
0: revisit it. I think in my mind, it's the best of both worlds. Cause you know, It was directed by someone who was famous for hiding the creature and making it psychological. Then the producers are like, it's called Night of the Fucking Demon. Show the demon. And they forced him to show it, and he hated it. But the demon design, I have it right there, is so good. It's awesome. So it's like the best psychological moodiness. Then the monster shows up, and it's incredible. And then it went on to inspire Hounds of Love by Kate Bush, which is like the best song of all time. So it's just like every one of my pipe dreams is to do – Uh, remake reimagining of night of the demon, Mm -hmm. but shoot it in set it in 1970s London and shoot it in hyper Technicolor like a hammer or amicus film. Mm -hmm. So instead of like the devil cult in the thirties, it's like a hippie Manson cult in the seventies and just make it totally hammer and over the top cheesy. And then of course get Kate Bush to play one of the weird mystics in the film. And like, it'll be amazing. (laughs) Total dream. But, uh, yeah, that film rocks.
2: That sounds pretty rad. Have you seen In Fabric
0: yet? Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Because
2: that, that, when we you were Fabric. talking about that, that color and the hammer yes. and the 70s yeah.
0: style. In Fabric is one of my favorite films. I saw it at the Overlook Film Festival last year mm. in New Orleans. And a very funny thing happened in the audience where I was I, I was sitting next to a, a friend, a fellow filmmaker podcast local to New Orleans. So they were there as like local reporters reporting on it. And like... We both knew the plot of this film. You know, it's about a haunted dress and it's a horror comedy. And so him and I are laughing our asses off like at it because we know it is. But the woman sitting next to me is like this arrogant, mean person. And I I think she was a little unhinged. She shushes us and then yells out, how dare you laugh at this? This is serious. This is a horror film. This isn't a comedy. And I'm like, what? And I'm like scared because a stranger is screaming at me in a cinema. And the whole rest of the audience like, looks around and then slowly but surely the film becomes more comical and obvious and clearly and the audience is laughing and this woman is shrinking in her seat and feeling very shamed as she should have been and the moment the credits started she got up and ran out because she didn't want to stick around to get chewed out but like it became one of my favorite moments I've ever had at a film festival I got screamed at by a lunatic for laughing at a comedy
2: <laughs> I have had that experience wow. In an even uh, not a stranger, the film itself wasn't stranger, but I feel like in the, okay. it's like in Fabric is yeah, is like she got she learned her lessons. It's a comedy, it's funny, it's yeah. fucked up as well. It's certainly a great horror film, very uncanny. Uh, mm-hmm. yes. But the film it was uh, Force Majeure. You
1: know oh, okay, film? yeah, with yeah, the avalanche, course.
2: which is that film is hilarious. And the vast majority of the audience, I was watching a very arty cinema on like a discount day whenever it came out years ago, and the whole audience is laughing laughed when this one woman sat up halfway through and was like, "It's not funny. It's very yeah.
0: traumatic." He's like, oh. was just like," and we we're just like, "Nah, it's, it's it's hilarious. This film's meant to be laughed." At. That's that just <laughs> I, it's in, that speaks to how people react to different things differently. But yeah, it's I don't know because then there are people who laugh nervously as a genuine reaction to horror films then you have people who laugh ironically because they don't want to get scared so it's Mm. laughter i can understand why some people get mad at laughter but also i feel like people should just be able to read the room or read the film better yeah Uh, but yeah people are insane (laughs) the reading the film
2: better i think is uh, like pretty essential because i think that is where i tend to run into the issue like i'm all for laughing at most Mm -hmm. things but yeah I've had some (laughs) slightly traumatic experiences with classic films that were being laughed Mm -hmm. at because they were old
0: oh yeah Uh, I I, yeah I I had that (laughs) I mean not that there are any cinemas open here in LA but back in the day you know we had a lot of repertory theaters and I sort of had to stop going because Mm -hmm. the ironic cooler than thou you know film people in LA like I remember I saw a screening of a herzog's nosferatu like mm. half a decade ago and the entire audience laughed at every pained exhalation of breath from kinski as orlock and i wanted to kill them it's like <laughs> this is a traumatic set like fuck you guys for if you're not if you don't let yourself engage with the film on the film's level don't go see the film mm. but it becomes like this olympics of laughter and uh yeah, I, I kind of stopped going to that theatre. And then, sure enough, that theatre got shut down for sexual malfeasance and bullshit behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, maybe I did read that room right. You people are assholes. The,
2: the one that hurt me the most was seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2K, I think. It was a remaster okay. recently. Oh, so it would have been, I'm trying <laughs> to figure out when it was. It was about six years ago. Uh, and, they, yeah, they laughed at Leatherface in his women makeup. And I was uh, like, there's yeah. multiple reasons why it's not great that you're laughing right now. I mean, Toby Hooper, I think, is a comedy director.
0: Oh, absolutely. 100%. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is hysterical, which is one of the reasons it's so scary and so clever. And yeah. that's a, that film is a perfect storm, perhaps the greatest American horror film ever. I, like, yeah, it's been, what can I say that hasn't been said? But mm. I do think there is an undercurrent of comedy to it in a vulgar way but also every single sequel other than his second one where he was intentionally spoofing itself like everyone took the wrong thinking from it like Mm. the first one is incredible because it's it's not gory it's psychological there's almost no blood leatherface is impressive because he's so sad and fucked up and like he's scared that these strangers are coming to his house and he doesn't know what to do and he's you feel sorry for him. It's it's more of a Frankenstein's monster. Like, you know, he's this sympathetic misunderstood and then he becomes a killing machine and it's all about blood and guts. And But yeah, it's also, it is very funny.
2: Yeah, well, that's <clears throat> the the only um, sequel I've re- really enjoyed out of the Hooper ones is part four, The Next Generation. Because I felt like it, I mean, it, I've only seen it once, right. I need to revisit it. But I... It's been a while. I loved how just demented and dumb. it, Like, I mean, dumb in a good way. Like, it was... Yeah,
0: no, it's, it's super silly. It leads into it. <laughs> that's that's the one where there's, like, a subplot that there's, like, government agents secretly uh, involved yeah, in the I family so. or something. And, and Matthew right?
2: McConaughey, he has the mechanical, like, contraption on his busted leg and he controls it with video VHS remotes. Right, right. And, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. he and going Zellweger have a fight over his VHS remote with his leg going crazy. It's like, I'm here for this. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things where it might not be a good film, but I am never going to yeah. see this anywhere else. <laughs> uh, but crazy. That, that um, yeah, because I just actually just yesterday rewatched uh, Spontaneous Combustion. Um, I don't think great. I've seen
0: that one yet. Oh, um, that I've, was what, late 70s or early 80s? No, combustion's
2: 1990? Oh, wait, is, that's is that. You're you talking Dure. about bo-
0: Body Melt? Or is that something no, else? No, no, no.
2: Body melt's an okay. film, um, you, okay, Melt is the Australian film. Okay, I'm getting it all confused. Have
0: you seen Body Melt? I, I Yeah, that's the one. It's like Australian suburbs and yeah. like yeah. It, it's the the really f- fucked f- up. And the, kid, the kid on and... the, mo- the skateboard who yeah. like melts in the rain. Yeah.
2: That's, okay. That's from here in Melbourne where okay. I am. Yeah, yes. So I'm okay. I'm in just there.
0: totally getting it confused. So spontaneous, yeah, I,
2: spontaneous Combustion's Toby Hooper.
0: Okay. Um, yes. Yes. With yes,
2: yes. Brad Durer starring. And oh, wow. Okay. I got
0: to check that out. That's yeah, nuts.
2: I didn't realize. It kind of just never really seemed to get much attention. And I, mm-hmm. I saw it a oh, crappy colleague DVD a couple of years ago and just fell in love. And I've got the blue now and it's so good cleaned up. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's one, I think you'd love it because it's one of, the, I tie it in with Blue Velvet and like parents and all those weird suburban oh, yeah. gothic nostalgic eighties American horror films, uh, because it is very much post. You know, it's a nuclear age film. Mm-hmm. It's very eighties nineties suburbia. Like they got that sort of, but things are not quite right and secrets Absolutely. and all this stuff. Yeah, and I'll definitely super, check it out. Yeah, like Barva kind of neon lighting, and it's. Him, much like Invaders from Mars, Hooper doing Mm-mm. a very Mm-mm. '50s style horror film, but welding it to this weird '80s and the slightly like comedic but not funny. Um, yeah, I, the more I saw of Hooper, the more that comedy aspect came out, especially later on. These mm-hmm. eight, I think, actually, you know, yeah, I agree. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably the best, not just the best horror film, but probably the best American film. Um, but it almost did him a disservice because yeah. people thought it was this horror guy, and he was. But everything like kept coming back to this comedy, you know. Eaten Alive as well. It's this hyper caricatured Eat- yeah. archetypes of America. Which Eaten leads- Alive
0: is pretty nuts, yeah, yeah. and also and- crazy neon lighting for sure. Yeah, and even though he was a seventies rickety alligator, whatever it is.
2: Even though was a seventies director where he got the big splash, I think the eighties much. Suited Hooper much better than the seventies, sure. uh, yeah, and spontaneous combustion is kind of like the cherry on the top for me. I think it's his best eighties work. Cool. Uh, oh, have you seen yeah. I'm Dangerous tonight, the TV movie you- he did? No, no, I haven't. Oh, that that's top three Hooper for me.
1: Okay. Interesting. Um,
2: that's really hard to find though. I've got found an old VHS mm. of it. It's actually is it Mr. James? It's adapting no Cornell Woolrich. It's adapting a Cornel okay. Woolrich story huh. about a. Like in fabric, it's a the an Aztec um, an Aztec ritual cloak that whoever wears it makes brings out uh, the elements of themselves or makes Is this
0: difference. the one with a Michin Armek from Twin Peaks?
2: Yes, and Anthony Okay, I've heard of it, I
0: just haven't seen it. Anthony
2: Bergens yeah. and D. Wallace as well. It's like an all-star oh, cool. cast. Wow. And mm. it's a TV movie, but it is so tongue-in-cheek, it is so camp and queer. And it's really 90s horror, Halloween mm-hmm. fun. Cool. And I've, sh- I've shown it at a couple of screenings. People have been like, why is this song available? It's, it's rad. And In Fabric definitely was riffing on stuff from that. Interesting. Um, and, yeah, so I think, like, that was actually Hooper's most productive period was that late 80s, early 90s when yeah. it was just that what he was doing was 100% for himself. And if you're not on that jag. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Wow. The uncanny, I think Mm. one of the things I'm going to talk about in the episode is where I brought up something weird and something you brought up triggered a thought for me was the
1: uh,
2: the relationship of uh, the unreliable narrator to the uncanny Mm. and there's some films which I think the films themselves are uncanny and they're quite Mm. often the films that people will be, is this even a film? Uh, something like Things, or you know, in Vampyr to a lesser degree because it is con- constructed so professionally, um, but even something weird where it's like either there's so many things crammed together or it's just so loosely constructed and made um, that the film itself is the unreliable narrator. That is, like, <laughs> is this film even trying to communicate with me? Like, is it trying to communicate? And so it dislodges the audience into a place that is any, mm. any experience
1: hmm. um
0: well i mean like i mean yodo was trying to do that like the end of the holy mountain is mm. completely about that but in a more in-your-face way uh whether it works or not it's what you're saying i don't know but but yeah that's i think there's especially some of the earlier experimental cinema or films and they're still exploring what it could be done they, they came at it more from that angle where it wasn't just the film, as a story, but it was an experience and something to be shared. And uh, yeah, I I think I'm a bit more narrative than that just because that's what I've grown up on. But within that, I think it's fun to play around with. And yeah, the more I think about it, almost everything I've ever written, it's from, there's maybe only one or two scripts that aren't, but it's, it's from one locked point of view and we see it all through this person and you can't trust their eyes. Because mm. how can we trust our own eyes? We we see stuff, our brain misinterprets things, and yeah, it's a fun it's a fun space to play around in.
2: I think the the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakian cinema connection there is mm. an interesting one because I'm, I'm a big fan as well. I've worked at the Czech and Slovak Film Festival here in Melbourne mm. and have guested on Projections Booth Czech Timber for the last couple of years. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. They even got to do some commentaries with them. Uh, we did Very the commentary cool. for The Ear. Um,
0: Oh, I haven't seen that one yet, but it's in my criterion queue, I believe. That's rad. We've got a commentary track on
2: on the the UK, with blue of that, and we've got one coming up. um, I don't think it's been released yet, so I'll have to, Mm. I'll I'll tell you later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Discovering Czech Cinema, it was probably about 13 years ago that I saw a a run of a couple of weeks at a a repertory cinema of Czech Surrealism, and Mm. it was just in love forever after of course (laughs) things like daisies and the ear um ballerina Mm. with the wonders cremator of course yeah and that experience there's it's films in which to say there's always two positions is to Mm. shrink it too much but it's like what we're saying with the with the the, the interesting, the the stop motion and the way that your interests lie. And with the spunk mire, that there is human and object in Czech films, the Czechoslovakian films a lot. And there's also, you know, that everything tends to have two positions. The Germans are really communists and vice versa. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of that unreliable narrator, but it's more, it's it's kind of like with your malakostica, that it's the the person who is experiencing it knows what world they're in, but they're struggling to interpret that world. <laughs> because-
0: yeah, for sure. And I guess I guess that speaks to the human experience in general, at least how I perceive it, because we're all just struggling to understand our world, and more and more it's harder and harder when our world turns to shit and the people in power who are supposed to be helping us are just in it for themselves. And, you know, like the state of the world wouldn't be accepted in a screenplay right now. It would be too obvious, too over the top. The villains are too comically evil and dumb. But mm-hmm. the fact that that's reality, yeah, it's it's, it's a lot. And maybe, yeah, I, I, I felt this way before it was all out in the open as much, maybe more than most. I don't know. But, yeah, it's a lot to grapple with. And uh, that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing, I guess, trying to. Yeah. Yeah, well, not to say that. Not to say that I'm like making things to fight the power. I don't feel like I have power. I'm barely in control of even my own creativity or how it gets out there. I just this is how my brain works. I got to do this whether there's an outlet for it or it works or not. I guess I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean that's what you got to do. Stay sane. So that's the first step in dealing with the world at large.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, what, what is this outside of the Spunkmire and? Um, Tremato, what are some of your other czech favorites if you're recommending czechoslovakian film oh boy
0: well i mean animation wise all the yuri barda and earlier yuri trinka all their shorts and their feet some of their features uh when i studied in Prague, we got to go to barandoff film studios where everything's been shot mm. and uh bardo was animating a film called like in the attic and that might have been the english translation to it but i got to go into those sets and uh I'm pretty sure that film is streamable somewhere, but it's kind of like a Czechoslovakian toy story mm. where it's like toys trying to fight back against, well, like an evil communist dictator sculpture up in the attic. Uh, that's really cool. Um, and then oh, I'm blinking on his name, but, uh, oh, Carol Zeman, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Who uh, I I only recently been getting into more of his stuff because it wasn't that readily available here in America, but like, um, was it like a, uh, Uh, the dangerous weapons or a dangerous invention all all his invention for destruction yes yes thank you his stuff just what a wonderful mix of live action and miniature and puppets and making everything look like a crosshatch drawing even though it's live it's just you look at that and those came out in like the late 50s early 60s and they're more visually revolutionary and wild than anything ever since and Mm. yeah it went on to inspire gilliam and others but no one did it like that guy did Mm. it's really cool and it's almost gone to the point where I'm trying to approach his films slowly just cause I don't want to see them all at once. I kind of like the idea that I can always dip my toes in and oh, there is another one. So cause yeah, when I was younger, I was voracious. I was like, I need to see everything. I got to collect everything, get it all. And now I'm kind of, I I'll take my time a little bit, I guess, but, but yeah, Oh God, I'm sure there's more, but, uh, I like, yeah, I, I I'm drawing a little bit of a brain blank, but just, I don't know. I feel like in general, if I come across a Czech film, I'll like it. Hmm. Just mood-wise, just something about it clicks with me. I don't know.
2: Yeah, one of the ones I did for a projection booth I hadn't seen uh, was Four Horsemen of Fear.
0: Ooh, I don't know that one.
2: That was the. That's probably the closest to The Cremator in regards to being mm. a horror-not-horror horror film okay for being like yeah this is definitely a horror film but not in any traditional <laughs>
0: boogeyman kind of way I'll have to
2: look it up yeah that's yeah. set in the middle of it's very kafka-esque and dealing with the nazis mm. and,
0: uh, i've always been a big kafka fan too when i was a kid my dad read kafka short stories to me as, as bedtime stories because <laughs> he was a weirdo and i was a weirdo and so that's yeah like the metamorphosis was a bedtime story when i was in it like grade school. Mm. So that I mean, unsurprisingly, I guess like look, I turned out this way. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. my
2: my dad gave me Camus the Outsider to read when I was like twelve or thirteen and I read that and was like, me (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, for
1: sure.
2: (laughs) The I think that was I I had come across Kafka reading just collections of horror short.
1: Mm. That there Mm. would
2: be sometimes some Kafka sprinkled in there. So when I actually became aware of Kafka as a person and read his books, I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar and go rummaging and pull out a couple of yeah. And I feel like that's actually the horror, not so much in cinema because horror cinema does tend to be pretty narrowing, unfortunately, and it's, some of it's connections between audience and creative. A, but yeah. I think that if you've come from horror literature background as a kid reading whatever you could find there's lots of uh, gateways where you suddenly realize you're actually an over and like periphery literary yeah. fields
0: yeah there, well i mean that speaks to the differences in, in design or style like the horror literature can go to so many different places so they don't have to worry about a budget or building these things out and you can read it at your own pace but yeah horror literature is definitely a a broader field to get lost in than horror film but certainly some of the best horror films draw up on the literature as well, I guess. Well, I think this... Or, I mean, yeah.
2: We're in a, something of a golden age now. We talked about, we mentioned Indicator, the just UK distributor previously. Mm-hmm. I think we're starting, or at least the people who are exploring the outer regions of these boutique distributors are starting to see how broad and strange horror has been. It's just that they have, because of the difficulties of film... But yeah. it is harder to get it out there because you're relying on theaters and all this thing there's so many horror films of really bizarre outre varieties yeah and they come coming yeah, more together into the
0: consciousness now or at least they're they're available <laughs> yeah that's definitely a plus it's like it's like oh i'm living at the end of the world but but I have access to everything. <laughs> um, yeah,
2: well, that's I've mean, been a part of my huge collection. Is it was just uh, you know having a night job and no life and being like, oh, it's that film I've been wanting mm-hmm. to see for thirty years. Fuck it. <laughs> and that yeah, I, I that's definitely altered a lot of my viewing tastes. It's definitely pushed me more. I, I describe it as the I'm on the cinematic version of Black Tar
0: heroin now. ha. ha. Where, yeah, but, yeah. You got to get the weirder, deeper, more powerful stuff after a while. Like it's. <laughs> Yeah. And that, 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 definitely, there's a danger to that, but with cinema, it's also fun. Like, yeah. When I come across, like when I am shocked by something new to me, that's old now, it's like the best feeling because mm. it's gotten to a point where I almost felt like I'm never going to be surprised by something again. Cause I've seen so much, but then when you do get something, it's like, wow, ah, it's brilliant. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, probably my favorite distributor at the moment is vinegar syndrome. And oh, yeah, I, like I look back at what I've got, and it's it's it, the completionist in me is like, I don't, there's lots of gaps. You know, look at the numbers on the spine because I'm a nerd, oh, yeah, sure. uh, but it's because you know they do release a lot of just straight up old porn and sleaze. And it's like there's some interesting stuff in there, but you wow. know, on a budget, looking at what they've got, it's I'm going for those films that never got released. That. Yeah, Um, I've never even even I haven't heard of, and I've been you know down these weird alleyways for a while. Things like I don't know if you've seen it, but um, the passing was a recent one that was an indie sci-fi drama that screened for one week in a cinema somewhere and then never played Mm -hmm. anywhere again. And that Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite finds this year that I've never heard of, Mm -hmm. never come across, and genuinely like left me feeling something. Um, So yeah, I think there's there's that. There's still a lot out there. It's just that it's they were lost for a reason. And that's why now we can come yeah. back to them and go, holy shit, this feels so fresh and alive because for sure. it wasn't ready for that time. Okay, well, um, yeah, thanks for joining us, Charles. And uh, we'll definitely have you back again. And we'll put up all the links. Did you want to give your letterbox twitter youtube whatever. Uh, yeah, part.
0: i'm most active on twitter my twitter handle is at inherent charlie and yeah you can find all my weird craziness there
2: yeah cool and yeah your letterbox as well are you like because i think you're famous, oh yeah on or?
0: letterbox i'm c piper that's yeah i i'm pretty active there too i review everything i ever watch even if it's just a couple goofy sentences yeah it's well, fun for me as a it's good just to keep the log as yeah, a visual
2: yeah. Exactly. I'm, I hate star ratings, but I always use them in Letterboxd just to remind <laughs> myself. Like
1: Same, same. Yeah.
2: <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, we'll put up links for all that and the story notes and whatever else. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely come back again. So thanks for all joining right. us.
0: Yeah, thank you. Till next time. Indeed. All right. Have a good morning and I'll have a good night. <laughs> Indeed.
2: Ciao. I'll catch you later, right. man. <laughs> Here's a brief promo from one of our cohorts, Morris, over at See Here Podcasts, and love that album, which we highly recommend, and he has been a most excellent dude in helping us get some of our sound issues sorted, general advice, and being, you know, prep, pep, pep talks, pep talks, prep talks, and general pep
3: talks as we find our feet. To many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis? I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. Not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. What makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, The Gigi Allen Story, Ishtar and Yellow Submarine. As well as Roundtable Film Talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at See Here. That's S-E-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs>
2: Many thanks to Charles Piper for joining us today on the Video Vortex Podcast Drive-In Edition. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, You've got your fill of popcorn, coke, and chop tops, and you're ready to dive back out into the world of cinema and soak up your eyeballs. Soak
1: them!
2: I'm talking shit. I'm rambling go carve a pumpkin enjoy some sugary treats don't do too many tricks and beware
1: the moon happy halloween all ciao